All right. Well, if we teach Cody to wave his hand a little, he'll have the um, old school him leading down to an art. Susan, thank you for playing. Uh, Susan is an excellent pianist. It's great to hear you up here playing today. Very uh, helpful. Sometimes just for a little different perspective. But, um, and of course, a lot of us grew up on the uh, old hymns and uh, those dance moves. Like, is that a dance move, really, though? I'm not sure. All right, turn with me to John chapter number three. We're going to look in at. Uh, John's Gospel today and next week we're going to shift gears away uh, from the Gospel of John and uh, take one week to just look at church strengthening and leadership and then the following Sunday we'll be back in the book of Acts. But this is a familiar story uh, for a lot of us in John chapter 3, probably the most... um, I saw this verse on TV last night watching football, John 3.16. People always hold it up in the the end zone when they kick the extra point. So uh, that's such an interesting phenomenon. But this passage, like I said, we'll we'll be familiar with it. John 3.1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this encounter and what it tells us about your heart, your purpose in rescuing people and 
I thank you for what it shows us about what we need, what every person needs. And we pray, Father, that you'll open our understanding. God, cleanse our hearts of sin. God, take away the impediments that will interfere with our ability to listen. God, we pray that you'll continue to work in our fellowship. God, strengthen us when we feel discouraged. Keep our eyes on you. And God, we pray that you'll be glorified among us for your name's sake. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a fascinating and a rich text of Scripture. Uh, What we see in it is that Nicodemus uh, gives us a description of him in the first couple of verses. He's an older man. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And he's a teacher, it says, of the or a leader among the Jews. Jesus tells him that he's also a teacher, tells us that. And so we get a pretty good idea of who Nicodemus is. We know that the scripture says he comes to Jesus by night. Most people would say it was because he was concerned about being seen with Jesus. He, he was concerned that uh, people would form an opinion about him based on his interaction with uh, with Jesus. We know that many of the Pharisees, the group that he would have belonged to, were vehemently opposed to Jesus' ministry. They were probably, according to what we see in Scripture, definitely were the people who uh, plotted to eventually have Jesus executed. And so Nicodemus, this is a risk that he takes, even coming to Jesus in this way at night. And he, Jesus speaks to him, we'll see, as if he represents a group larger than himself. He's actually, I think, in the way that Jesus interacts with him, in some translations, in verse 12, you can see it pretty clearly that Jesus changes the way he's uh, speaking to him. And he he says, uh, he speaks about himself as if he exists uh, among others. Jesus says, we've testified. We speak to you about earthly things and you don't receive our witness. Our witness, he says, right? That's how it puts it. In verse 12, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he, the word you directed at Nicodemus is the second person plural. So if you were like me and didn't pay all that much attention in, in school, what it, what it means is like he's saying y'all, you all, the, the group of people that you represent. So you don't get that in a lot of English translations, but it's really what's happening here is that Jesus is really calling Nicodemus to take a stand against a group of people and and to go further than just to come and speak to him in, in the secrecy of evening. And so when we look at this passage of scripture, we see that what Jesus directs the conversation toward isn't what Nicodemus wants to talk about at first, right? Nicodemus is like, hey, we know that you're a I'm going to give you your your flowers, right? I'm going to acknowledge who you are, that you're a teacher, you're a rabbi. I'm going to give you your propers, you know? And, and Jesus doesn't even go into that conversation. He just interrupts him and says, I'm going to tell you what you're really here for. You don't know what you're here for. I'm going to tell you why you came. And he says, what you really are looking for is the, is the a need. You must be born again. So it's interesting that Jesus just goes completely away from the direction of the conversation that Nicodemus has in his mind, and he tells him, listen, this is what you need, and not only is it what you need, but because you can see later on the way Jesus drives the conversation, he says, your party, the Pharisees, and in essence, everybody needs the same thing. 
Everyone needs the same thing, and that is to be born again, to be born from above. And so in the message today, we'll see three reasons that the new birth, it really is life's most important commitment. There is nothing that you can commit to that's more important than this reality of being born from above, being born again. And at the end, there will be an appeal for you to respond if you never have responded because that's what the passage really does. It is a calling to us to make a stand, to come out of darkness into light, to respond to the offer of pardon and forgiveness that Jesus has made available to us. So here here is one of the reasons that the new birth is uh, absolutely essential or it's... uh, uh, the most important commitment that a person can make because Jesus says so. Jesus says it, that the new birth is absolutely uh, indispensable. It's absolutely necessary to everyone. And so we think about Nicodemus, and what we see in him is that the new birth is absolutely necessary even for the very religious. That's who this person is. It would be difficult to find anybody in the first century that was more religious. It's like when Paul describes himself in Philippians, the Apostle Paul gives his testimony in the letter to the Philippians, and he says, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Benjamite, and this is the same idea. Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, he he was someone that exemplified what it meant to be a meticulously religious human being. He would have observed all of the religious requirements of his time, but Jesus says, your faith is incomplete. I'm calling you, you to something more than religion, and Nicodemus has a certain understanding about who Jesus is, it's, but it's incomplete. It's inadequate. Jesus, he calls him what? Rabbi, teacher. And that was true because Jesus had followers and Jesus instructed and Jesus publicly would hold forth and he would give insight into truth about God. But he recognizes that he's sent from God because he sees the miraculous signs. If you remember the uh, passage that we saw last week was Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus goes to the temple during Passover. He braids a whip. He drives out the money changers and those that sell oxen and doves and uh, Jesus turns over their tables and it's a sign and of course this happens in Jerusalem and that's what Nicodemus probably is talking about. Maybe he's aware of the fact that Jesus has turned water into wine at a wedding. There certainly had to be uh, insight about the signs that Jesus has begun to do as he enters into his public ministry. So he says, we recognize you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. So he, he is acknowledging Jesus to a point, but... What he believes about Jesus is not the whole truth. And Jesus is going to say, here's the whole truth about me. Being religious, though, isn't enough. And a lot of us have been religious in in our life. I was religious before I was a follower of Jesus. At least I had some idea about religion. Grew up going to vacation Bible school making um, crafts in Sunday school and stuff like that. Did all those things, but I didn't know all of the truth about Jesus until a certain point that it intersected with my need and I became aware of who Jesus really is and what his claims on me were. Uh, 
But Jesus says being religious isn't enough. Belief is specific. Sometimes I think we, we don't want belief to be specific. We think it's okay to have vague general ideas about God. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus came and spoke and made it specific. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he says faith is definitely specific. Details matter when it comes to knowing God. And we think about the phrase born again. Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Well, it sounded alien to Nicodemus, didn't it? He says, what do you mean? And some people will say a commentary that I read says it's really kind of a rabbinic query. It's it's the way that rabbis would talk. It's the way that... uh, they would have a conversation to, and he's really, he's really not, you know, thinking I could. Any, he knows better than to think any adult can go back and be born physically again. That's not what he's thinking. But he's saying, Jesus, I know you don't mean that a man can go back into his mother's womb and be physically born a second time. So what are you really telling me? What is it that you're saying? Because you can't be saying that. But Jesus uses the phrase to be born again or to be born from above, which for us is like almost so overworked that it sounds like a cliche, really. I mean, uh, uh, especially for some of us who are older, we remember Jimmy Carter. You remember that? I do. I mean, I, I remember when he was president. I remember gas lines, even though I wasn't old enough to drive. But it wasn't a good time in our in our country's life and economically and stuff like that. But Jimmy Carter was in the press as being a born-again believer in, in Jesus. And, of course, it was at the height of uh, the time when Billy Graham could fill stadiums with tens of thousands of people who had gathered to hear the good news proclaimed. And what was Billy Graham saying to them? He was saying, you need to be born again. So the idea of being born again, Chuck Colson, who was one of the conspirators in the Watergate uh, uh, scandal, who was convicted, went to prison, wrote a book, his testimony, it was called Born Again, one of the first Christian books I ever read. But, it, you know, maybe not as much now, but in, in the past, it's almost like a cliche that sort of loses its sense to us, and so... When Jesus says that, here's what he's saying to Nicodemus. You, sir, must start anew. You have religion, but you need to start from the first block again because your religion's not helpful. You need a totally different life. That's what it means to be born again. It means to get a totally different life. You need a new beginning Your current life must be exchanged for another life. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. The life that you have, sir, as religious as you are, is not going to get you to God. You need another life, a a new start. You need an awakening that's so disruptive that it will feel as if your life has started all over again. That's what it means to be born again. You know, for some people it doesn't feel as disruptive. It certainly felt that way to me. It felt like the old life, and that's how Paul describes it too in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's what the new life is like. God gives us. He takes the old life and replaces it with something 
completely different. And only he can do it. It is a spiritual work that God does that contains mystery, which we'll see. But that's the scripture shows us like, here's this religious guy. He still is missing something that everybody has to have. Also, the new birth is necessary even when we don't completely understand how it works. He asked the same thing two different times in this text. How? How is this possible? How does this work? He wants to know. And I love love how Jesus describes it. He's like, well, you know how the wind blows and you hear the sound of it and you know it's coming from somewhere and you see the effect of it, but you can't, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. He says, that's what the work of the the Spirit is like. And, And Nicodemus is like, well, that completely clarifies all of it, right? Now, he couldn't have felt that way. But his aunt, he answers Jesus, how? How can this be? How could this truth be how, how life and spiritual, spiritual truth is? And Jesus says, well, here's how a person is born again, by the washing of water and the spirit. He says, water, a person has to be born by water and by spirit. And the water, of course, is an emblem of cleansing and washing and forgiveness. And so when he says you have to be born by water and spirit, he's saying there has to be a cleansing and, a, and the work of forgiveness has to happen in a person's life. And the spirit has to come and animate that person's life. The spirit has to come and inside of a dead person and make that dead person live to God. And we're going to look in a moment at a bunch of scripture that, that reinforces that, that that's how it works. The washing of water. You know, we practice baptism in obedience to Jesus' command. When a person comes to this crisis of belief and they trust in Jesus and they, they are baptized, and the baptism itself is like pulling water out of a pump out here that you put in here and that it's a little cold, you know. But when you put somebody in that water, it does not wash away sin. But what it does do is depict what happens when Jesus comes into a person's life is that he does wash away our sin. He does cleanse us and forgive us. And so baptism, there's a liturgy that often we'll use that, you know, it varies from person to person. When I baptize someone, I will say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his, his resurrection because it pictures two different things. It pictures the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but it also pictures the fact that your old person has died and the new you is coming up out of a watery tomb. That's what baptism is. There's an old person that died and that new person that's come to life because the Spirit has come to live in them, that person is, is raised and and into newness of life. And it spells that out in Romans chapter 6, that what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin continue any longer in it? Or don't you know that we who died to sin have been made alive in Christ? And he says, we we no longer live in our old life, but we're raised to uh, newness of life, and that we we shouldn't be uh, slaves to our old ways. And course I'm paraphrasing quite a bit what it says in Romans chapter 6 but it's basically saying that that you've died you've been raised again to uh, this brand new life and so the Bible recognizes two categories of people and that's what he says to Nicodemus he says that which is born of flesh is what it's flesh he says that which is born of the spirit is spirit 
There are two categories of people that Jesus acknowledges. He says there is the person who is dead in trespasses and sins. There is the person who is animated and made alive by Christ. And those are the only two categories that Jesus recognizes. Either we've entered into spiritual life or we remain dead in our, in our sins. Either we are merely natural and the only resource that we have at our disposal is us, our intellect, our self, our experience, or we're supernatural, spiritually inhabited by God so that he gives us insight into, into himself and makes us live again. What was sacrificed because of sin and the fall, the Bible says, is spiritual life. Do you remember that in the garden when uh, Jesus, when God had laid down parameters and he says, this is what life in God looks like? And he says, you can't eat of this particular tree in the garden. And, and they did. They disobeyed God. And God said, the day that you do that, you will what? Surely die. He says, you will surely die. And so we know what we're seeing in that story is the narrative of the fact that sin disrupted people's connection to God. It disrupts, disrupted, and the Bible teaches that every human being is a sinner by nature and by choice. We inherited a sin nature according to the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, in the scripture, excuse me, I think it's Romans chapter 5 actually that talks about the, the uh, fact that we've we have uh, all of us identify with Adam, and all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. And everybody is either made alive to God or merely natural. And the only way that we're made alive to God is through God. And here, here's what the Scripture says: You were dead in trespasses and sins. In Ephesians chapter two, this, it says this is what's true about humans. This is when you're born. And you grow up, the natural condition of every person is that we are separated from God because of sin, both ours and that of others, uh, the sin that preceded us. The Bible says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And the scripture says this is what God does. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is an expansion on the idea of what it means to be born again in the scripture. It's taking the inanimate, dead person that has no response to God and giving them the uh, spiritual life and so that that person is, can respond to God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. There is a transaction that occurs so that God takes the person that's in the category of dead, alienated, separated, and He moves that person into this category of connected, alive, reanimated. Re, uh, First Peter chapter 3, verse 5. You can just see that in a lot of places, the writers of Scripture had this same idea that got expressed a little bit differently. This is First Peter chapter number 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven 
for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter says the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in Colossians and Ephesians. He says, this is what God does. This is what's required. This is what makes a person an authentic follower of Jesus. He says the, the Spirit of God changes us, translates us, causes us to be alive again to God. James, in chapter 1, verse 18, the book of James says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When he says he brought us forth, it's exactly the same thing that the Bible says through Paul, through Peter, and now James. To be brought forth is to be born, to be born into a life that we previously were not part of, to be made an, uh, part of a family that before we weren't in that family, but now we are. So we're either born into God's family by faith or we are still alienated and estranged. Look at this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, it says this is the pre-Christian condition of everyone. That before Christ, it says you are alienated. Alienated. We think about an alien as someone who... It's It communicates being foreign to these realities. And that's what the Bible is saying. You are foreign to spiritual realities. But now he will go on and say you've been translated. And then also in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and, the, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. See what the scripture writers do over and over again? They say, look, these are the categories. And that's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says, these are the categories. There's light, there's darkness, there's spiritual life, there's alienation, there is a spiritual person, there is a natural person. And this is how he's talking to Nicodemus, who is like, "What? you know, this isn't the conversation I was trying to have, but Jesus is like, this is the conversation you need to have. In chapter 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. He's describing the spiritual situation for humans. And this is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in this story. Do we belong to God by grace through faith and repentant commitment? That's thoughtful and deliberate and yet a profound mystery. That's what we see. It's a profound mystery because when Nicodemus wants to understand it, he's like, how can these things be? And that's what Jesus gives him. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. There's a mystery. It's why the theology students argue about free will and sovereignty and you will never go to a single seminary anywhere that you don't find theology students arguing about how it works. And yet, we haven't figured out completely how it works. We just know that it works, that it produces a, a new human being, a new life. And it's, it's, uh, there, all this, the illustrations I could share will break down at some point, but it's like 
you, you drove here today. I bet you in this room there are not that many since Joe doesn't go to church here anymore since he moved to Florida. Not all that many competent mechanics, maybe a few. So a lot of us just got in our vehicle and we put the key in the ignition or we pressed the button. It started up and we didn't go, you know what, I am not going to drive this thing until I have a complete and thorough understanding about every aspect of how it works. That's not what you did. You got in it. You committed to by faith to the fact that this thing would start and get you, and sometimes it doesn't, but most of the time it does, and you just accept it by faith. You live in a house, and you don't go, you know what, I don't completely understand HVAC. I don't know how that works. So I'm just going to leave this puppy off until, you know, some later date when I fully understand all the thermodynamic realities about how it captures and transfers and the electrical process. No, you just go turn it on and enjoy conditioned air, hot or cold. And it's kind of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here. He's saying to him, listen, there is a, an incredible spirituality, uh, spiritual reality that I'm communicating to you. You don't know everything about it, but it works. It's how it works. So he, he, he is being told you need to be translated from death to life. And you need to trust that this is what I'm telling you. And then he's going to tell him in a moment why he should trust it. We have enough to go on to see that there are facts working that are real and helpful. And, that, and then we proceed on faith. That's how, how we do it. I, for certain, didn't know everything about all that was involved in salvation when I surrendered. But the surrender was the important part for me. It was the, uh, I could recognize that my way of doing life didn't work. My way didn't work. It was breaking down all the time. And I didn't know what life was for. I didn't know the big picture of what life meant. And it was in surrender, recognizing I needed to be forgiven, recognizing that there was a person who claimed to be the Savior. And committing my life to that, that transformation began to occur for me and hope began to happen. But the question is, God has revealed truth to us or we can't know it. But the question is, how are we, what are we going to do about it? I've shared this illustration a lot, so bear with me if I've shared it here before. But it, it's like um, my wife has a hope chest. Anybody have a hope chest? It, it's a kind of an old-fashioned thing. But, like, my wife has one, and probably neither one of us can really remember what's in it. You could guess, you know, what somebody would put in there, like dishes and silverware, something that got passed down from their uh, family to them, heirlooms, right? Probably, generally, we know heirlooms are probably inside of that hope chest. It's a big trunk with things in it. But you couldn't accurately say what's in there unless someone opened the lid and said, take a look, here's what's in here. And, and that's what revelation is like. It's God saying, look, you could have a general sense of what God is and means, but I have chosen to open the lid up and invite you to look inside. And he did that in a process through the history of Israel and their festivals and the religious observations and his interaction at times in big, powerful ways through people like Moses and later other prophets and David, and we get an account of all that. But finally, the writer in Hebrews said, God himself came and spoke through 
his son, the, the brightness of his image, the expressed Im- uh, image of his person or likeness of his person that God came and told us. So it's like God opened up the lid and said, look in here and here's the detailed stuff that you need to know. That's revelation. And it's what the claim of Christian, uh, Christianity is, is that there's revelation, that it's specific, that God shows us, that God chose to reveal, and that the reason that this all holds together is because God himself came here and, and spoke. God lived among us, which is what we've been saying for the last five, six weeks during the Christmas season, Advent. But at some point, we have to surrender the doubts that we have to some, some of these realities that Christ spoke. Do it now or later. Do it now or later because the Bible says that uh, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now or later. We'll either do it now willingly as worshipers or we'll do it later. But the Bible says don't make any mistake. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess because God will show us obviously visibly who he is. So the new birth, first of all, we see it's absolutely necessary. That's what Jesus says. Secondly, the new birth rests on his own credibility. But Look at verse 11. He says, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. So Jesus is speaking about the fact that he exists in triune community, Father, Son, Spirit. If you remember, we've referred to this many, many times, how in Genesis it says, let us make man in our image, let us create uh, you know, man, us, the community that already existed because God is plural, God is triune, God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. And it's the Son who comes and speaks and comes to earth. And his insight is what makes him credible. You can see in the scripture the fact that he says, we speak what we know. I'm not telling you something that's conjecture. He says, what I'm telling you is what I know because I'm the author of it. So a lot of us, if you enjoy reading, you may have a favorite author. You know, I, I have authors I enjoy. I enjoy John Grisham. I enjoy, he's not all that hard to figure out. He's pretty straightforward. I like Cormac McCarthy. That's my favorite writer probably who died last year. He, if I read his books, I might have some questions. Who would be most expert about Cormac McCarthy? Some literature professor or Cormac McCarthy? Well, he would be. And Jesus says, listen, I am the author of reality. Me. I wrote it. I'm the one when you, if you get into DNA, I'm there. I'm the one who put all this together and assigns meaning to life. And so he says, we speak of our own authority. That What makes the new birth credible as a reality is that Jesus came and said, this is how it works. He says, I speak what I've seen with my father in John 8, 38. And then in verse 42, he says, I proceeded forth and came from God. And what he's doing in verse 12 especially is pitting his collective witness against their collective resistance. That's what's happening. He, he pits his collective witness against their collective resistance because together they were saying that Jesus is not God. We talked about this you know, when, uh, Thursday when we had men's Bible study that they still clung to Moses as Moses would for them have been more authoritative than Jesus and Jesus is saying, 
Moses only said what I told him to say. I'm the author. I'm before Moses. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says. And when he said that, he he was saying, I existed. And they were, wait, 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 wait. Abraham predates you by a thousand years. How How could you be before Abraham? And, and, of course, we know what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I, because I am that I am. He's Yahweh. He's God who became flesh. So his origins also make him credible, where he comes from and what, where he, what he knows. And so the scripture says he's the one who ascends to heaven and came down from heaven. The son of man, which they would have known was a reference to Messiah. And so... But he, he says to, in answer to uh, Nicodemus, he, he, who says, how can these things be? Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel, but you don't know these things? And he, he says, I've told you, verse 12, earthly things, and you don't believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And what Jesus is saying is this is the most basic spiritual truth that you've got to get if you're going to get any other spiritual truth. If you don't receive this truth, you are never going to graduate to other truths. This truth about the new birth. This, he says, is like the ABCs. You remember, uh, maybe, I mean, I remember my earliest members are, memories are three or four years old. I definitely remember kindergarten. I definitely remember being, remember being a nearsighted little kid in school when they were trying to teach me the ABCs. But you don't learn to read without learning the ABCs, right? That's where it begins. A, they teach you a little alphabet song. And then you start to learn whole numbers because what are whole numbers? They are the key to unlocking math, which I never un- unlocked all that well. But those numbers are the key to addition. They're the key to subtraction, multiplication, division, all that complicated stuff like algebra when they start throwing the alphabet in there with numbers and geometry and all of it begins with this very basic thing and that's what Jesus says. He's like, if you don't get the basics, you're not going to get the rest of it either. And the basic is surrender to this revelation and being born from above. It's step one and Jesus' origin is the test of his credibility. His counsel is eternal, and he says, this is because I'm the word made flesh. That's what you see in John chapter 1, uh, verse, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word w- uh, w- was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So Jesus says, this is why you can believe me, Nicodemus, is because my credibility is about where I've come from and who I am. And what I testify you to you is from the author of life. God came to earth to tell us in the plainest terms what he requires, and that's what we have here, is these plain terms. And then the, the passage shows us that the new birth it, it begins for people when we hear about it, a spiritual crisis. That's where Nicodemus is now. And it introduces a crisis regarding what we believe about human nature and what we think is wrong with the world. Most people, if they're honest, will say, yeah, something is definitely wrong with the world. You know, if you don't think that, like I've said before, don't turn on the news because the news is full of ideas about there being something wrong with the world war and murder and mistreatment of humans by other humans 
And we, we can see that there's something that looks like evil that's at work in the world around us. There's something that went wrong, it feels like. And then, you know, if we think about our own life, boy, I don't know if you ever have this experience, but once in a while I'll be awakened and I'll just start thinking about regrets. I don't think it's a very healthy exercise to commit to all the time, but once in a while it's not too bad to think about the ways that my life went into because of my choices you know not in spite of me but because of my choices went to places where I felt disappointed in how I was as a human and the and the thing is above that is someone else who wrote those standards into the human heart the Bible says that the this sense that we have about virtue and wrong and right is scripted into life by the same author that it's not just something that humans concluded across thousands and thousands of years, but it's been innately formed into us by someone who created us in his image. That's what it means to be made in his image. It means that we retain within, within us this sense that there must be justice. There must be right and wrong. These things weren't just, uh, they didn't come to us just as conclusions as people, but God put those realities into human experience and we all hold it in common. So that's why we feel disappointment, regret at times. It's why we know that we've come short of something. The scripture uses an illustration here from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. God had delivered his people from captivity. He put, he put them into a process of inheriting a land of promise that he was going to give to them. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He provided for them deliverance and safety after the Passover. Then there was the Exodus, and they left loaded with riches from Egypt. They get to the desert, and all they do is sing his praises all the time, right? All they do is go, oh, praise God, he's so... No, I mean, the Bible says all they did was complain all the time. We've got bread, but we don't want bread. We want quail. God sends them quail. We're dying of thirst. God, how much must you hate us to put us out here in the desert to die? That, that's the point in the story where the Bible says God sent fiery serpents among the people and that they, were, they would be bitten. And when they start to cry out, God told Moses, make a, a bronze a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole and hold it up and anybody that looks at it, it says will live. They will be delivered from the bitter poison of this reptile's sting, this serpent's sting. He says, hold it up. Anybody that looks at it will live. And Jesus chose that as an illustration about what he was doing. He says, just as Moses held up the serpent and anybody that looked at it lived, he says, so the son of man must be lifted up from the, from the earth, that whoever believes in him, that's what he says, that's the criteria, whoever believes in him will not perish. We look and we live, that's the message. These people murmured against God, there were consequences, but there was also mercy and salvation through God's own provision. You know our problem is that we want to live in a world without consequences. We want to think that like there's no righteous judge and that there is no accountability, that we're just here and we're the end of everything, but that's not the message of Scripture. It's not what Christians believe based on what Jesus came and said and did. 
But we, what we see is that God makes provision for salvation from the stinging poison of sin. For us, that's what Jesus is saying. So faith ends up being that we put the full weight of our hope and expectation on Jesus only. Our, we look and we live. Our, we believe. And the scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those that come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those that carefully seek after him. My experience was he was even rewarding people that were imperfectly seeking after him. I didn't know even sometimes what to want. It was just like I've said before, I just started crying out. I started crying out out of brokenness and misery and making a mess out of my life, and God sent me insight. But it, it introduces a crisis. That's what we see with this narrative. It introduces a crisis regarding what we believe about God's nature. What is God like? Listen to what it says in John three sixteen. God for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't assign us to hopeless despair. God came to us to rescue us. And not only did he send a representative, he came. He came and became a human. And in his humanity identified with us in our struggle and replaced us. And when it talks about him, when Jesus says, it, we think about what this meant to him when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if possible, let this cup be taken away from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Jesus felt the anguish of the cross and the heaviness of our guilt. And, and yet he took it upon himself and he bore it for us. This is the message of hope in the Bible. The Bible says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we, we want to know what God is like. This is what God is like. God is the one who gives us all things through Christ instead of assigning us to destruction with no hope. God loves so God gives. God so loved the world that he gave. God gives so we can truly live. His requirement is authentic faith. We think, I don't, you know, it's a gift as well. I believe repentance and faith are gifts. that, And yet, in the mystery of it, we respond to them and we receive Christ. We say yes. We surrender. Surrender seems sometimes like such a, a nebulous concept. How do we do it? We just bring the best part of us that we can to this thing and say yes to God the consequence is rescue from alienation and placement into his family Jesus was on a mission of salvation and not judgment that's what he says he says don't the son of man didn't come into the world to condemn the, the world but that the world through him might be rescued might be saved and people are often like what about the one who hasn't heard you know what a better question is what about you who have heard what about us, the ones that do have access to the gospel and can see God's kindness being expressed toward us? The scripture here introduces a crisis regarding human responsibility and accountability to God as well. Because although Jesus says my primary mission is not condemnation, he also says that he who is not believed is condemned already because he's not believed in the only begotten Son of God. He says this is the condition of er There are two categories of humans. There's the natural person who exists under condemnation. There's the spiritual person who's been rescued and forgiven and cleansed based on their faith in God's Son who came into history to not to be ignored but to be received, not to be rejected but to be welcomed. And so 
It's the prevailing situation for everyone is that we exist in a state of condemnation that he came to dispatch, he was dispatched to save us out of. That's what we see in the scripture. And it introduces this crisis lastly in this passage that we can see what do we think life really means and that's the what Jesus is talking about here when he gets into even ethical life. An intersection. He says here, this is the condemnation and the word really means this is the crisis that's introduced by this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus and us. He says this is the condemnation or this is the verdict or crisis is how some translations will put it. That light is coming to the world but men prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds were wicked. It says anybody that loves their sin more than Jesus, loves their uh, own individual choice and loves their life the way they want it, rather than surrendering to life the way God says it should be, he says you're expressing a preference. That's what you're doing. And my preference is not to be, well, not for my life to be run by God, but for me to run my life. That's what he says here to Nicodemus. I think this is, it's fascinating. I'd never really thought about this before, but the analogy that Jesus uses of light and darkness, he's saying to Nicodemus, Here's, what did this guy do? He comes to Jesus when? At night, when it's dark. He says, let me ask you a question, Nicodemus. What do you prefer? Do you prefer to keep living your life in darkness or are you coming into this light? He's, he's laying down for him that kind of challenge. He's, he's really saying to him, are you going to come out of darkness and hiding and follow me publicly? Or are you going to keep playing around at the edges of this thing? And he, he tells him, listen, light is the cure for eradicating our darkness. That's what I came to experience and have come to experience is that his light is the key. First John chapter 1, verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin and we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin and we have fellowship with, with each other. He says, God is inviting us into a life of light. And when we let light in, it shines it onto the dark places in our life and it is the, the first step toward eradication. Continual repentance is the life of Jesus' follower. So we, when we return to God, when we turn to him and respond to Jesus, we're released from the crippling grip of fear, which I love these passages. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in First in John it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's like when we're dominated by fear, it is a confession of sorts that we haven't clearly understood what Jesus did because he took away all the reason that you and I have for the fear of condemnation and judgment. He did that himself for us. Uh, this is a hopeful story because when you go forward to John chapter 19, guess who you find at Jesus' tomb? Or he, he's there at Jesus' burial. Nicodemus, John chapter 19, Nicodemus shows up with expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' body for burial. So there were two things at work. One, it was an expensive commitment that he made personally, financially. But also, it was costly because it's a declaration. 
When he came into the open in the way that he did, it was a declaration of his publicly following Jesus. That's what I believe. It's a hopeful story because he comes into the open and he's part of the Jesus story. But here's what we want to think about today. How about you? How about you? Are you part of this great story? Have you taken this first step of surrender? Have you responded to God's initiative? Because God's already acted. God's already done the work for us and so that we rest in him through our surrender. Have you yielded? He sent the Savior. That's what the scripture shows us here. He's been lifted up. The one who says, if I'm lifted up, he says, I'll draw all men to myself. He has been lifted up. He was put on a cross. He was raised up above the earth for us to look at and to live, to commit to him by faith. Now he's asking us to come out into the open and follow him. There is no one who follows Jesus halfway or secretly. He says, if you deny me before men, he says, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. He says, if you, if you uh, receive me and, and, and follow me before people, he says, you know, you, you're, you also are demonstrating that you belong to the Father. So there, there's no such thing as following him secretly. It's all in public commitment of ourselves. It's why it begins for the people who are uh, capable of it in a watery tomb. The watery tomb is the place where we say, my faith is public. My faith is public. I'm following Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have our uh, time of commitment today. And I think it's been pretty clear, you know, that for some of us, this is a call to publicly follow Christ. And so I'm going to invite you to do that. Start somewhere. Mine started as I've shared a lot of times, sitting down with my mom at her kitchen table, 24 years old, stuck, hopeless, but hearing exactly this message and saying, this is what I need. Yes, praying, just opening up myself, praying, not knowing how to pray, just saying, help, here I am, you know, broken, messed up, I need help, and receiving Christ, and then showing up at church, you know, where I used to go and hold on to the pew, white-knuckled, listen to those messages I knew were about me. And then finally, just coming forward to say, I'm publicly following Jesus now. Everything that entails is going to be part of my life now. And my wife and I, I've got the pictures of us being baptized. Our church sanctuary burned to the ground. And they uh, rebuilt it, and they hadn't installed the baptistry back in the place it was going to go. But we were a part of a group of people that came forward, and me with my mullet. I had a mullet back then, believe it or not. Put into a watery tomb, raised back to life, and have been on this journey since then of trust in Christ over and over and over again, but just realizing in that moment I was cleansed, forgiven, free. And that's how we started life as a married couple, giving ourselves to, to Jesus and then living for him. And so that's how it looks for people is that at some point we say, I'm ready to cross over. I'm ready to yield. I don't understand everything about it. Neither did Nicodemus. God says you just commit. You commit and he meets us in our commitment. 
And so I'm going to invite you now, stand with me. And also, I'm going to ask you if, if this is, you're hearing, hey, that's me, to respond today. I'll pray with you. We'll, we'll present your decision so you can begin to live it publicly. And, you know, there may be other needs. Maybe today as you listen, you're just burdened for someone that needs this reality. Your, your family members or neighbors. And, you know, I just encourage you, please pray for them. But let's pray. And then as we sing, if there's a need to respond, I encourage you to do that. Not thinking of others, just thinking of yourself and God. Father, we're grateful today for this very clear message of salvation, hope that you've told us that the one who knows everything, the one that wrote meaning into life, came here to express it clearly to us. And so, God, we're just thankful. Thank you that that's what you've done, that you've brought us life and you've brought truth to us. And I pray today that you help us in these moments, God, that we'll be willing to yield ourselves in the ways that you show us and help us to follow you openly. And we ask for your strength now and this time. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.